good to be with you guys again to teach on behalf of Justin. Justin wanted to make sure to let you guys know that he will be back. Um, he'll be back on the 21st, and he should be good from there on in. Um, his knee is supposed to be getting better and, and getting healed. And so, um, anyways, while he's out, I'll get a chance to continue our series in the doctrine. Um, I had a great opportunity this morning to not only fill in for him here at the 10 o'clock service, but to do the Arcadia deal. Um, for some of you guys who don't know, Justin teaches. When he teaches here, he teaches in Arcadia at 9. And then he runs over here and teaches here at 10. And then he drives back over to Arcadia and teaches there at 11. And I did that today and almost died. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a trek. I didn't eat anything. I was lightheaded in the Arcadia crowd. Listen, here's the deal. All campuses are different. There's no one, there's no one campus that's better than another. Tempe's is better. So, there, but, but there's no one campus that's better than another. So it was good to be with them. And God bless those those guys in Arcadia. If you're here visiting from Arcadia, we love you so much, and we were happy that you would spend the time to be with us this morning. So, yeah. Would you guys take out your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 2? Let's, let's have some fun today. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of the church. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hand up, hold it up high so the guys can be able to get you a Bible. Um, if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Please keep it. If you do own a Bible but you forgot it, raise your hand and um, get yourself a Bible and just place it, place it back at the rack on your way out, and we'll get a chance to uh, look through God's words together. Um, we've been charting through this series, and I think this is week 10 or 11. We're almost done with this. We've been going through this whole summer on the series of the doctrine, and we said we would take the summer to look at this series, and we're almost done. However, the summer is not even close to being done, but we're almost done with this series, and we get to a part which one of my, one of my favorite is, is talking about the church. And so what I want to look at this evening is, is, is look at what is the church, um, and then from there, who leads the church, and then why the church. So why, meaning where, where is its place in the redemptive story of God? And so what is the church, who leads the church, and why? And we'll look at these implications uh, of the church. And so before we jump in, Acts chapter 2, hold your place there, and um, would you guys join me in a time of prayer? Father, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus, who is the chief shepherd and who leads us. And as we submit to him by your Holy Spirit, through faith and grace. God, I pray that you would take our hearts and you would unite them in the gospel. And as we look at the implications of the doctrine of the church, God, I pray that you would convict us. There's a lot of, a lot of good stuff in here, Lord. Um, stuff that we ought to be doing that we, we are not. And God, I pray that it would not be something that is from guilt, that is completely foreign to the world, but conviction that is from your spirit. God, I thank you for this, this awesome opportunity to open up the scriptures, to look at the early church and what you were doing, and Lord, to look at ourselves now, and that you would call us to, to be submitted to Jesus, who is the head of the body, to lead us and to guide us. In Christ's name, amen. When we begin talking about church, uh, even the doctrine of the church, what happens is we have an understanding of church. Whether you grew up going to church or you knew someone who went to church or you grew up going to a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or whatever the church may be, you, you, we have some sort of understanding of church. And it's usually tied to an experience. And so for me, I grew up in a predominantly African-American church. I know. I grew up in an all African-American church, and, 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 and we had an experience. In fact, we wouldn't even say going to church. We would say we was having some church, right? It was church. <laughs> we would have some church, and, and, and I try to tell people, you don't understand, like, the choir was, like, the biggest deal. Um, um, we'd have some announcements, and someone would lead, like, a solo song that no one else can sing except for this person. It was usually, like, an old lady, and then after she was done, the choir would bust through the doors, and we'd look up. It was kind of like a wedding, but it was just, like, jubilee, and they'd come in, and they'd be rocking. They had the robes on, and the I, like, I wanted to be a part of the choir so bad. One problem. 
I can't sing. And, and I'm just telling you, being, being an African-American church and not being able to sing is an issue, right? You, you have to be able to sing and clap or they just tell you, hey, obviously you're not a Christian, so you, you, you need to leave here. So, but that was my experience. I mean, we had church all day long. We had eight Sunday school from 8.30 to 9.30, and then the service was from 9.30 to whenever. And, and, and they would say things like, oh, we just go into the Spirit's done, right? And it's like, no, I think the Spirit was done a long time ago. <laughs> um, I, I'm convinced that the reason I didn't get saved uh, going to that church is nothing with the church, nothing with the teaching, it had everything to do with the fact how long it was. I think the Spirit was just worn out. Like, Ricardo, I was going to open up your heart. Ooh, I'm tired. I'm out. Moving on. <laughs> I'll find you in college, right? And so that was my experience. And, and we all have some sort of experience about church, whether it was good or whether it was bad. But, but what we would do is we would go to church every single week on Wednesdays, on Thursdays. We constantly went to church. In fact, when you guys got up this morning or this evening when you were on your way, you said you are probably going to go to church or what time are we going to get to church? And therein lies our problem. Fundamentally, through our words that we say, we show that we have a biblically inaccurate view of what the church is. We don't go to church. We are the church. The, the, the church is not a place, if you get anything today, here it is. The church is not a place where, but a people who. The, the church is not a place where people worship, but the church is a people who worship and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're careful and you hear Garth every single Sunday, he does this, and I know that he's intentional about it. He always says, welcome Redemption Church. He never says, welcome to Redemption Church. Now, if he does now, totally make fun of him because I just put him on the spot. But he, he usually says, welcome Redemption Church. In fact, we're trying to teach our kids right now. My, my little son, the only one that can talk, of two of them, um, the one that can barely talk, says that we're going to church. And I'm like, no, son, we don't go to church. We are the church. And I know he's going to grow up and go, Dad, listen, quit saying that. Everyone says we're going to church. I get it. Quit harassing me. No one listens to you anyway. I, I can already hear it. And I'm just going to go just like that. And, 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 but we're trying to teach him. We go to the place where the church gathers. And so the church is not a place where, but a people who. And when you talk about the doctrine of the church, there's kind of two big buckets. One, there's a universal church. And the universal church is a church, or it's also called the Catholic church. It means universal. Um, the universal church is every single person who's ever believed in God for faith and salvation. That means the saints that have gone before us, Old Testament saints, saints that have already died and are with the Lord in glory, those of us who believe and place our faith in Jesus now, and also those of us who will come after we die and go to be with the glory with the Lord um, if Jesus doesn't come back before them. That's the universal church. But more specifically, we have the local church. And the local church is basically the local gathering of the universal church, of people. And so we have a local gathering here in Tempe. There's a local gathering in Arcadia, and a local gathering in Gilbert, and, and Arcadia. There's local gatherings all over Tempe and all over the country and all over the world called the local church. Um, Gary Brashears and Mark Driscoll have a good quote on or definition of what the local church is, and this is what they say. The local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus, Christ as Lord, and obedience to the scripture. They organize under qualified biblical leadership and gather regularly for preaching and worship. They observe biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, and are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries for the world and for God's glory and for their joy. And so in essence, he's saying that's what the local church is. People who believe in Jesus, submit to the scripture, submit to God, submit to the biblical authority and leadership. That's what the church is. 
And then what Luke gives us in Acts chapter two is, is four realities what the, every single spirit-filled church should have. And so what is the church? We see what every church, four realities here of what every spirit-filled church should have, beginning uh, in verse 42. Um, the context here is Acts chapter one. Jesus has been resurrected. He's talking to his disciples. He says, go nowhere, but stay here, here meaning Jerusalem, and the spirit will come upon you. Acts chapter two, we see the spirit is poured out upon the people. They begin to speak in other languages. They're evangelizing and praying. It's a great scene. After that, Peter gets up and he preaches, and 3,000 people become Christians at that moment. They go from 120 to 3,120 after one sermon, and here they are now gathering as a ragtag, large inner city church, and here's the four realities that should be present in every church. First, there should be a devotion to the word. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The first thing that we see is every spirit-filled church has to be a church that devotes themselves to God's word. This is something that could happen through the proclamation of God's word and what we do here every Sunday. This could be something that happens in redemption communities when you open up the scriptures, but there's a devotion to it. There's a commitment to God's word, both individually and corporately. If a church is to be a church, they will have preaching and teaching and explaining of the text. And they devoted themselves to it, and they also prayed. And prayer is important when it comes to the word of God because what prayer does is it opens it up. We ask God to illuminate or to make sense of the word. We ask God to apply the word to our own life. We ask God for memorization, for help for memorization for the scripture. But we see there's a devotion to the word. The second thing that we see is it's a supernatural community. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 43, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so here's what I mean. If a church is a church, there should be a present working of the Holy Spirit. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit should be working in the lives of believers, in the lives of the church. And what I mean by this, it doesn't just mean there has to be signs and wonders. There has to be prophecies. But there's a range here as we see in 43 to 45. We see that there are signs and wonders that are being done by the apostles. And then by the Holy Spirit, people are convicted that maybe they're, they're being greedy and maybe they're holding on. And God, has, who has freely given to them, now they freely give to others. And we see them sharing their possessions, distributing their needs to people who had needs, distributing their goods to people who had needs. And this is, can only be a work of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that, that, that I, I hear consistently um, since I've been here in Tempe for the past seven or eight months it's been now is when I meet with people that are about 24, 25, 26 in that, that range, and I talk about, okay, let's talk about your walk with the Lord. Let's talk about where you are in Christ and how you're growing. And, and what I hear every so often is, is an experience. And that experience is usually an awesome experience about an, uh, a moment in young life or a season in Campus Crusade or, or a season in some college ministry of which they drew near to the Lord, and it was amazing. And what I ask, and, and somewhat of a, just a, a soft, gentle way, is what is God doing now? I mean, now that you've been out of college for three, four, five, six, seven years, what is God doing now? Be because biblically what we see is the Spirit should be at work and present now. We shouldn't have to, as believers, hold on to some past experience because we walked down an aisle or because we signed a card or we had some awesome experience, which was great, and God did great things, but God continues to do great things in the lives of his people. 
And if a church is going to be marked, it's going to be marked by people who were led and filled by the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, what does that look like? The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. The primary role of the Holy Spirit, he regenerates or he opens up hearts that we can believe, he gives us gifts, he convicts of sin and righteousness, but ultimately he points a person to Jesus. And so how do we know if the Spirit is evident in the life of our church? Two key elements, repentance and faith. That takes God to do that. One way is taking a person who has a dead heart, who does not believe in God, who does not believe in Jesus, where he or she finally sees her need, that she is a sinner separated from a holy God, and that wrath is deserving of her because of her sinful nature and sinful actions. And yet God in his infinite mercy and love has placed his love upon her and placed the penalty for her sin on Jesus Christ that she may respond in faith and be loved and embraced and have a father in God. That's the gospel. And what the spirit does is it takes that dead heart and make it a live heart. And she or he repents to believe in Jesus from a dead heart to a Christian heart, to a heart that beats for Jesus. And then what the Spirit also does, for those of us who have been Christians already, is that the life, the process continues in repentance and faith. And so when we find ourselves who have a live heart, but they're growing stagnant, and we're chasing other things, whatever the idols are, whether it's comfort, whether it's self-control, whether it's human approval, whether it's power, and those things show themselves in different ways from the way you lie, um, to the way you deal with your money, to your anger, to your arrogance, to your pride, to your fear to be able to speak boldly about Jesus, I have to underline there's, there's an idol because we're worshiping something else other than Jesus. And what the Holy Spirit does in our life, it convicts us to show us that Jesus is enough. Where our identity is, where our life is, hidden in Christ, Jesus is enough. That's how we'll know if there's repentance and faith. And that's what we have here, a supernatural community where the Spirit is at work, Amen. The, the, the third thing that we see is, this, this is the worshiping community. And I love this. In verse 46, they said, And day by day they attended the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. I mean, and they were excited. There's something about worship that, that, that leads you to just thankfulness. Well, you ever notice those people that are really in love with God and you see them and they're just thankful for everything? Sometimes they're annoying and sometimes it's just genuine, you know? Those people are like, oh, I'm so happy. It's 115 degrees outside. And it's like... I just got finished complaining. Dang, it's 115 degrees outside. It's hot. Those people, these people worship, and they worship formally and informally. Day by day, they went to the temple, and they worshiped. When I read that, um, when I was studying for this, I was like, I wonder if this is what my mom used to read, why we used to, um, we don't go to the church, how we used to go to the place where the church gathered all the time as a kid. It was like, oh, it's Wednesday night prayer night. Come on, kids. It's Tuesday night. I don't know. It's something. It's Tuesday night. We're going to go again. And it was all, I'm like, oh, maybe day by day they went to the temple. Okay, you don't need to be here. In fact, we're not here um, every day. Day by day, they gathered and they worshiped formally, and then they broke bread in their homes informally. So what that means they broke bread is that they remember the gospel because they remember it was the same gospel that redeemed them and washed them of their sin uh, through the blood, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it was the same gospel that, that they shared with each other over and over again. They couldn't get enough of it. They never moved on to something else. It was the same truth that they looked in the face of Jesus and they realized how much they were loved by him. And they kept reminding each other of that truth and looking to Jesus, they worshiped. And they became thankful people. It was a, it was a community that was a worshiping community. So they devoted themselves to the word. You got, we gotta have that. A supernatural community where the spirit is work at work through showing repentance and faith and all types of other things through the community. 
a worshiping community, that we see and love Jesus. And then lastly, they're a winsome community. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were winsome. And when I say winsome is they had favor. Because of their relationship with God, God gave them favor with those who didn't believe in God. And they were liked. Now, I'm not arguing that we should try to do things to be liked by people, but, but, but I am saying that we should probably do some, stop doing some of the things we do to not be liked by people. Um, Christians do some crazy things that, that don't have nothing to do with the gospel. Like, if we're going to be offensive, let's be offensive with the truth of the cross. The cross is offensive. Let's not be offensive with our preferences or our styles or the way that we dress or we don't dress. Um, I made a comment earlier that, that when we used to talk to, when I was a student ministry pastor, we used to always talk about how you used to, you need to be in the world but not of the world, and you need to live a life that's radically different. And for some reason, um, Christians take radically different to mean radically weird. And, and that's, that, that's not it. My, my guess is um, the people here, they look like the people in their community. They dress like the people in their community. They didn't make like different like witness wear crew um, <laughs> nightgowns or whatever they wore at that time. They, 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 probably, they probably dressed like everyone else, but yet they were winsome in a way that people liked them. They, they, they were the type of people that people said, we don't believe what they believe, but we're sure glad they're here. They care about us. And then God added to their number day by day by day. My, my fear is not that we're, we're unliked by our community. My, my biggest fear is I wonder if we're known by our community. Like, the people around them knew them. And, and I just wonder if they even know who we are. Not just Redemption Church. I'm talking about just Christians in general. Like, do they even know what we believe? Because so often as Christians, we find ourselves being identified with what we don't believe and what we don't do as opposed to what we do believe and identified with the person and the life and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what scares me. And so we see this community. That's where they are. They're, they're, a, they're a winsome community, a worshiping community, devote themselves to the Lord, and they're a supernatural community. Now, how they express those things, every church has got to have those four realities. They got to. They ha- you have to have those things. How they express it, completely different. They could, sh- they completely different. They, it depends on the leaders there. I, I was in Arcadia this morning, like I said, and I was in the back room before I came, and there was, there was a bunch of copies of the Wall Street Journal out there laying around. It was like typical, right? Um, I know, I just stereotyped, and they're like, oh, what are you guys reading, Tempe? I was like, hipster illustrated, so. <laughs> no. We're just different. If you went to Arcadia and the Tempe and to Gilbert to Gateway, you would see we are one church, and yet the way we express these things, completely different, and that's okay. The message can't change. Now, the methods, they're changing all the time, but it comes down to who leads it and how they see that God is fit for and called for that particular local congregation to go and do ministry. And so who leads the church? There's three offices, biblically. And what, what an office is, it's a position of authority and responsibility um, or duty or trust that's giving, um, assigned by the church to a person to administer or to serve in such a way that brings glory to God and serves the people in the body. Um, the offices never change. The people within the office can change, but the office themselves don't change. So the first one is elder pastor. An elder pastor is used in the Bible interchangeably, so we use it interchangeably. It'd be the equivalent of my, my, my son calling me dad and my other son calling me father. Um, and what the elder pastor does, his role, we believe, the Bible teaches, that there are qualified biblical men that are raised up, that are called, that are laid on by the hands of prayer, and ultimately called by God, identified by the other elders to come on to oversee pastoral care, the needs of the people, 
and then the protection of the church um, and doctrine. And so primary ways, this is what it looks like. That means an elder pastor is to come alongside, pastoral care, counseling, coming alongside, praying for them, um, marrying, burying, rebuking, correcting, teaching, all of those things, equipping and building up the body. That's pastoral care. The next way is guarding the doctrine of the church. And that's really important why we would take 13 weeks to go through a series and say, buy the study guide, buy the, buy the book, because this is what we believe the Bible to teach. One of Satan's ways to divide the church, he can't pluck people away from God's hand. He can't do it. God's too powerful. But what he can do and what he tries to do is to infiltrate a church and to divide people over heresies. That's false teaching. And so it's on the elders, pastors of the church to guard the teaching of the church. That's been one of my greatest joys being here is sitting down with people and that, that hear all types of teaching and saying, here's what the Bible says. Not here's what, just what we believe. Here's what the Bible says about this and about that. So those are your elder pastors, biblically qualified men. Then you have deacons. And we believe in the Bible's deacons. The word deacon means servant. And deacons are biblically qualified, called men and women who serve. And they lead service. And so we have people that function as deacons here. We have worship leader that functions as a deacon. Caitlin does the children's ministry here. We have people who lead redemption communities, people who lead uh, service, people who lead mission projects. We have many deacons here at this church that function as deacons. And the last office is church membership. And when the Bible speaks of church membership, it always speaks about it in a relational way or in relational terms. It's a covenant or a commitment, a covenant from the church to the member and from the member to the church. It's a public mutual agreement from the member to participate, him or her, to participate in community through, through giving of their time, their money, their efforts, through community of ministry and, ministry and mission. And, and, and so what that means is the member covenants or commits to, to pouring out their passion, their zeal, their resources, their time, their efforts, and relationships to the advancement of the kingdom. And then the church commits to that member to train, to equip, to build up, to comfort, and to encourage, and to pray for them. And they come together. That's church membership. And that's for every single person who's believed in Jesus Christ who now joins specifically here or commits to a local church. Now, to join a church is not the same thing as to join a country club or something like that. It, it, it is literally to be a participating member of a local church. And so those are the office. Pastor, elder, deacon, and church membership. Now, who leads the church? Find it. Got it. Three offices. Why? What's the, what's, what's the place of the church in God's story? The best thing about this book and the way we've been going through this series is, even though it's been a systematic st study of theology, it's gone through the grain or with the grain alongside the grain of the biblical narrative, meaning we see at the very beginning God created, it was beautiful, man sinned, and then God pursued. And then we see that God started because of his own infinite love and mercy and grace towards his people. He started a long plan of redemption by choosing a man named Abram. And he told Abram, through your family, all nations will be blessed. That was the beginning of the gospel. All nations will come to know, all tribes, all languages, all people groups. They will come to know me through your family. And through that family became the nation of Israel. Yet Israel failed in their mission to bear witness and glory to God. And yet the church comes in, not as plan B. You have to get this. The church was God's always, always plan A. Israel never could have done it. And the only reason why the church can fulfill her mission is not because of the church, but because who is the head of the church? Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected, and he gave the church his Holy Spirit. Um, men and women in the Old Testament did not have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and yet the church does. 
And so where the church stands, why the church, for whatever reason, God chooses the church to be his plan A to show forth to the world his glory and his purposes for redeeming, for renewing, and for restoring the entire universe. Like that, it's a big deal. To be a part of the church by invitation is a big deal to God. And therefore, it should be a big deal to us. When it comes to mission, I think the best, the best definition I've ever heard of mission, because it's not the church's mission, but it's God's mission, because we have a missional God, is by Christopher Wright in his book, Mission of God. And here's what he says. Fundamentally, our mission, if it is biblically informed, means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command and God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of creation. At the very heart of this, he's saying if it's to be biblically informed, we need to first be invited. It's something that God has to call us into. And once he's called us to himself, now by command we go forth to participate in ultimately what a sovereign God is doing in the world. Ultimately, showing forth his glory to redeem and to renew. And so, so what? What's the so what to that? How do we live and walk that out? My, my sister has two boys, and I was really proud of her for having two boys, um, because I think that's a godly thing. And, and, and the first one, funny kid, awesome kid, and the second one, John Tay, uh, when he was just a little kid, he used to crawl, and he was so fast at crawling. I just looked at him, and I said, you know what? He's going to be a star athlete. In fact, he's going to go to ASU, he's going to play football, he's going to get drafted by the Raiders. That's what's going to happen for him. And, 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 um, and about three or four years, five years later, he was four or five years old, and my sister called him. She goes, hey, John Tay's playing in soccer. If you can come home for a weekend to come watch him play, that would just mean the world to him and mean the world to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd love to come. And so I'm excited to come watch him play, and he looks cute. I don't know if you guys have ever seen little kids in their soccer uniform. He's got his red jersey on and his, and his black shorts that go all the way down to his ankle. And I'm like, yes! He's a steward, and, 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 and I'm just excited for him. And they're going through their little drills, and he's running faster than all the other kids, and he's looking at me the whole time, and it made me feel proud, even though I'm not his dad, but I kind of like felt like, that's my boy, right? And, and, and the game starts, and little kids' soccer is an absolute mess. Like, they roll the ball out there, and all these kids just fly to the ball. The coach gets them all in their positions, like, you stand here, little Johnny, and you stand over here, Eric, and, and, and stop picking your nose. And then you come over here, and as soon as the ball is rolled out there, they all just run in the ball. And then wherever the ball goes, that's where both teams go. And they're just flying around, except for Jonte. Jonte and some other knucklehead kid is on the other side of the field turning cartwheels. <laughs> I look at my sister, I'm like, what are you doing? He's supposed to be athletic. He's supposed to go to ASU and play for the Raiders. What you, what's going on here? And after the game, I talked to him. I was like, hey, man, like, you know. <laughs> What are you doing? <laughs> and he goes, oh, you know, I, I, he, goes, he goes, man, Uncle, I, I, don't, I don't really like, like soccer that much, but I really like the team. I really like the pizza parties. We have a pizza party after every game. We get, and, he, you know, he names all the stuff that, you know, the oranges and the Capri Suns and, like, all of those things. And, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, that's it for him. And my sister's already paid, so the, the, the fee's there. He gets to keep the uniform. His name's written on there. I mean, he's going to have, he's gonna have a picture that, that has his, you know, the team picture. His picture's going to be out there. It's going to have his name. At the end of the year, they're going to give him all the You're So Awesome award to every single kid, though he didn't do anything. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the picture's MVP, and it's him holding a soccer ball with, like, both of his teeth missing in the front. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be really, really cute. Like, there's going to be record. Like, you're in it. My sister paid it. And yet, you, you didn't even participate. All he had to do was show up, but he didn't even participate. Now, now here's where I'm going with that. 
In the same way that my sister paid and he's on the team and there's nothing he can do to get off the team, the uniform's here, his name's gonna be written in the record of the team. It's the same way with those of us who believe in Jesus. When it, when it comes to us being a part of the church, Jesus has already paid for it. He, he's given his life for every single person who would believe. All we have to do to be on the team, ultimately, to be a part of the church, is show up. It's only by faith. Jesus does all the work. And yet, once you're on the team, he expects you and he commands you to participate. But what most of us do, we pick and choose, like John Tay. We pick and choose the things that we like to do, and so we hang out over here instead of getting active with maybe some of the things that we don't like to do. And, 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 and I just wonder sometimes where we fit in that. Is that we're, because we know there's nothing we did to get into the kingdom and there's nothing we can do to get out of it. It's completely by grace and by faith. Yet that grace and that faith should propel us to be active instead of, you know, metaphorically speaking, spinning cartwheels. We, we play church so often, we show up and we get out, but we really are not really participated into God's cosmic reality called the church. And it wasn't just joking, saying it's a big deal. Redemption church is not a big deal. God's church is a big deal to the point that he'd die for it, to the point that he'd bleed for it. And so now, those of us who profess in that, I mean, for those of us who say we believe that, that there should be a life change and we should get active, that we should participate in this. And so I have two major implications from there that we'll just spend the rest of the time um, fleshing out. The first is, if God so loved the world that he gave his son and his motivation was out of love, our motivation now to respond to the gospel has to be out of love because it can't be just duty. It has to be something that is born out of love and looking and seeing seeing Jesus and what he's done for us. And so the first thing we need to do, we gotta love our church. If we're gonna be the church, we're gonna be the church wherever God has us, we have to love our church. And so that can mean many things. First, that's getting to know and to love the people that are here. It's getting to know the people that sit around you. Not that you have to be best friends, but, but it's like Christ selfless sacrificing himself, so sacrificing your time to get involved and get to know the people within your church, get to know their names, get to know their families, loving for them, praying for them, coming alongside them, not just attending a service with them, but being with one another. And a major implication within there is to, to become a member of a church. One of the ways you show that you're in is by going through membership. And so I'm sure Ryan did the announcements earlier, but we have a membership class starting on Wednesday. You can go through it for four weeks and see, is this the church I want to be a member of? I'm not even saying, I'm not even arguing for being a member here. Just be a member somewhere. Participate somewhere in what the God, God through his spirit is doing through that your local church. Like let people know that you're in biblically. Submit to biblical authority and community with people. Love your church. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. Turn to the left if you're in Acts. This, this is a command now from, from Jesus. As he's speaking to his disciples here. John chapter 13, let's begin in verse 34. Here's what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just, if I, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Two things Jesus says here. One, it's a commandment. Love in the way that I've loved you. Love the same way that I loved you, meaning it's always in a response to seeing Jesus. And the second thing, it's got a missional thrust in this. They will know Jesus. They will know that we are his disciples by the way we love each other. That, That those who, they, speaking those who don't know, 
will, will come into a place like this where the church gathers and will come into your life, into your community and say, they must be Christians because of the way that we love each other. That's the, that's the first thing. It's love your church. Participate in your church. Submit to the leadership of your church. Lead in your church. Give to your church. And I'm not talking just money. I'm talking yourself. Ultimately giving to Jesus, who's the head of the church. Amen? The, the, the second thing that we have here is love intentionally. And it, if you take your hold your spot right here and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Because when I say love intentionally, what I have behind here is, is the understanding of discipleship. And Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, if you've been around um, Bible teaching for a while, you would know this as the great commission. And jokingly, it, it's often talked as the great omission. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always and to the end of the age. We're going to just kind of camp here for a while. Because when I'm talking about love intentionally, it has the ideal of discipleship. And there's three areas, three big areas where this happens. The first area that it happens is at home. The, the second area is your neighborhood. And the third area is your work. And there could be others, but those are three big buckets. And when I say discipleship, because I think biblically, discipleship starts at relationship. We're not exactly sure when, when the disciples became Christians. We know, we know at Acts 2 they were Christians. But before that, we know Jesus said, follow me, and they entered into relationship with him. Jesus never shied away of saying who he is and who his father was. He pointed him, but there was relationship there. And so when I say it starts at home, husbands, those of you guys who are married here, it's loving your wives and giving yourself to your wives. It's, it's submitting to Jesus and seeing how he gave himself to the church that now you give yourself to your wife. It's living with her in an understanding way, as Peter says. And then wives, it's, it's loving your husband, it's caring for him, it's praying for him, it's pointing out sin in his life, in, in, a, in a very gracious way, it's pointing out sin in his life when, when you see it. It's going back and forth and pointing to Jesus. And, the, and then now, if you have kids, you reciprocate that same love and relationship to your, to your kids. And you raise them that way. My, um, our community group a couple weeks ago was talking about discipleship and when discipleship started, and we're just talking about this, this same topic. And my wife said one thing she's noticed, she raised her hand, one thing I've noticed and I'm convicted of is that, that I'm just managing my kids or raising my kids, but I'm not intentionally discipling my kids. And we're talking about, oh, discipling. She goes, and I get it, my kids are not Christian. Like, one's three months and one's two and a half, they're not Christian. I said, wait a minute. Um, Eli, the three-month-old, he, he, he's a saint. Now, Noah, that dude needs Jesus, right? He, and, 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 and obviously, she never listens to me. Um, but, but, but she goes on and says, no, we have to create a context in such a way that when our children grow up, that they're able to respond to faith by Christ's love and by the Holy Spirit. But we create a context for that. We create relationship for that. And she was saying, I need to be more intentional. And I said, that's right. And, and that's what I mean by discipleship starts a relationship. Many of you have been given people who don't know Jesus, but we're great friends with them, but we never think about, oh, man, that's, that's right. I can begin a relationship. I already have a relationship with this guy or this gal that I should need to be more intentional. That's why I said love intentionally. You probably already care about these people. You're probably praying for them, but be more intentional. So it happens at home. It happens in your dorm. It happens in your, with your roommates. It happens there. God's placed you there for a reason. The next place is in your neighborhood. Now, when I, when I talk about your neighborhood, that could be the, the community you live in, that could be the apartment complex you live in, the neighborhood you live in, or it could be the places that you hang out, the gym that you work out in, whatever it may be, but it's being intentional there. 
intentional with your time and the people that you meet there. And the same thing, beginning relationship with them. And lastly, it's being intentional at work, so vocationally. And not so much just loving what you do, though that'd be great too, but why you do it and how you do it. And so when, when the Apostle Paul is talking in Ephesians 6 about slaves and masters, the principles come there for employers and employees. And he says, for employees, when you begin to work, you're not working so that people would like you as eye-pleasing or people-pleasing, but you work wholeheartedly for the Lord. You've got to think about every time you go to work, what can I do here to glorify my God? That means it comes to your dress, it comes to the way that you show up on time, it comes to your language, it comes to your productivity. Are you working for the glory of God? That's a witness piece. And it's also, you can share Jesus there. I'm I'm, I'm not saying that everywhere you work, you got to go in there and start a Bible study. That's not what I'm saying. Or or you have to go in there and and tell everybody, you know, hell's hot, but I believe in Jesus. You know, like that you don't have to do do things like that. It's just saying be intentional at your work. And, And with that, there's no job that's more holy or more godly than someone else. So often you hear people say, man, your job, pastor, man, your job, pastor. One, I'm like, just call me Ricardo. And, and my job is not any higher than anyone else's. Um, this is just where God has me. In fact, this is not the best job I've ever had. It's, it's not. Um, there was a better job, <laughs> and um, I should tell you what it is. The better job was when I was a permanent substitute teacher at a high school and coaching football and track. Let me just tell you why it was better. First, it was awesome. And <laughs> And I had no responsibilities, right? I mean, I'm a permanent sub. I showed up. Hey, Carlos, are you here? Ricardo, you're here. Michael, you're, you're here. All right, cool. Shut up. This is what your teacher told you to do. <laughs> Bell rings. Next class. And they paid me for it. It was awesome, all right? No responsibility. I was like, man, every day I woke up thinking, I have the easiest job in America. Like, no one asked me anything. No one talks to me. It was perfect. Um, things have changed, right? I love what I do, but that was an easy job. And there's some jobs that you guys have that I would never want, right? Or I'm just, I just couldn't do. Like one of the jobs I wouldn't want is to be a stay-at-home mom uh, at all. Um, when I, it takes me three hours to be with my sons, not even three hours. I'm hoping three of those hours are nap. And when I'm, when I'm at home by myself without my wife and it's just me and the boys, I feel like everything that doesn't happen when she's there happens. As soon as the garage closes, it's just like my, my oldest son walks up to me like, what up, dude? Like, and it's like... <laughs> Like, what, what's, what's happening here, right? What's happening? And, I, and she comes home like, you won't believe it. Noah pulled a knife on me. Like, and it's like, <laughs> and she's like, no, no, no. No, but seriously, I'm like, I would not want to do this. So some of you guys, God has you there for a reason. You may not think so, but he has you there for a reason. And not just some, some shallow reason. He has you there ultimately to glorify his name, and you don't know what he's doing. But have your eyes open and love intentionally. J- Jesus says here in Matthew, Matthew chapter 28 that we are to make disciples. This is a command. And where it really hits home is, if, I want you to raise your hand, but if you ask yourself right now, who are you discipling? Like who right now in your life are you discipling? Those of you who say that you're a Christian, and, and this, is, this is the primary task of which God's called the church to do, to go and make disciples. Now, when it says go make disciples, what we naturally think is that the imperative here is go, and that's not. The imperative is make disciples. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And most of us say, I don't really know who I'm discipling. And, and, and he goes on to say this, that you're supposed to be making disciples and teaching them to observe all that Christ has said. And, and what happens is, is some of us, some of us feel incompetent. Like, I don't know enough. I don't know as, know as much as the guy who's teaching the Bible. I don't know as much as my redemption community. I just don't know enough. And if you know enough to be saved, if you know enough to be a Christian, then you know enough to disciple it may sound really, really humble to say, I'm kind of incompetent. I don't really know. I need to, but 
that, that's actually a lie. And it's a failure to believe in the gospel. If God places you in a position to do something that he's called you to do, he will give you his Holy Spirit to do it. It's the same thing that I tell husbands. I get it. I've only been married for four years. Being married is not the easiest thing in the world, but I know God has me here. Therefore, he's going to provide. I know God called me to do this. Therefore, he's going to provide. It's the same thing whenever I get up and teach. I know God will provide. His spirit will provide. If God's called me to do something, I do it faithfully, knowing that God's going to provide. So wherever you are in your discipleship journey, yeah, are there people that are ahead of you? Without a doubt. There's people who know more, people who pray more, but you start wherever you are and you go. And when you start doing what God's called you to do, you depend upon him more. You go to him more. You plead for him more. So, so here it is. All you got to do is to be a half a step ahead of somebody else. And there you can start disciple. I mean, you got to just barely get your arm out there and you can start there. You may just know, listen, I'm a sinner and Jesus loves me. Boom, bam. Saved by grace. I mean, just start there. So, so it's, it's a call and it's a command. And then he says this. This is what a disciple is. And so just all of us are clear. A disciple is not someone who's gone to seminary. A disciple is not somebody who is very, very smart. A converted disciple who Jesus is talking to is not someone who, who is just hitting on all theological cylinders. A di- disciple is this. He says in verse 19, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And that word baptize literally means to immerse or to be identified with. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. When it, when it says to be baptized in the name of the Father, when we go to people, we have, like when we do baptism here in just a couple of weeks, we'll have to ask people, are you identified with the Father? Do you know that? What that means is you're a child. You were not born into this world as a natural child of God. Ephesians 2 says that by nature we were children of wrath, but God, who was rich in mercy, he saved us. And, and what Romans and Ephesians and Galatians lets us know is now the Spirit has come inside of us and it cries out, Abba, Father, meaning now those of us who were far off have now been brought near. So you are identified with the Father. He doesn't see you as some, some stranger. He knows you intimately. He's your dad. That's what every disciple needs to know. And the next thing it says to be identified with the son and to be identified with the son is to realize this. You have no righteousness in yourself before God, but you have a foreign righteousness, a perfect righteousness that comes from Jesus, that, that he's washed you with his blood, that he's covered you with his righteousness. And so now the father, when he looks at you, he doesn't look at your sin. He doesn't look at what you, what you did yesterday or your thoughts. He doesn't look at those things. Not that he's ignorant of them, but he, but he sees Jesus. And I think I can't say this enough but, but if we got this, if I got this, that when God sees me, he looks at me and says, that's my boy, not because of anything I've ever done, but because of Jesus, that he loves me the same way that he loves Jesus, that, that, that he cannot break that. He's committed himself to me in the same way that he commits himself to Jesus. Every disciple needs to know that. And then lastly, it says, baptize him in the name of the Holy Spirit. And to be baptized and identified with the Holy Spirit is a new life. It's a new life. I mean, the old you is gone. Do you still sin? Do you still struggle? Absolutely. But you have been given something by faith in Jesus that no one else has, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be there. It's identified with the new life, the resurrected life of Christ. It's a Tao payment that reminds you of Jesus, reminds you who you are. That your, your identity doesn't come first with your ethnicity or your race or what you've done, your past, your present, your job. It's identified wholly in who God is. Every disciple needs to know that. And, and, and now all of you guys know that. And now you just go and you teach others and see if they believe in Jesus and you walk from there. Amen? Lastly, we, we, could, we could love the church and we could love intentionally at home 
and the places we hang out and our neighborhoods, and we can love intentionally even in our work. We can understand that, 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 that we need to make disciples. But when it comes to that, let me, let me just say this. When you start a relationship, I would be a fool if I didn't, if I didn't continue in saying this. You can start a relationship anywhere, but eventually you got to tell them about Jesus. There's that quote that no one really knows who said it, that, that preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Great quote. I get it. There's, you know, I get it. But you're going to have to use some words or draw a picture or something, right? You, 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 you're going to have to tell people about Jesus. And if, here's, here's the deal. If he's the most important person, you'll talk about him. We'll talk about anything else. We'll talk about a concert, concert, whoever singer we like. We'll, we'll talk about an actor or somebody. Ultimately, if Jesus is who he is in our life, we'll talk about him. We'll talk about him. And one of the most convicting things is this when you think about it. If I, if I really love Jesus and he's called me to make disciples and called me to share the gospel, who's the last person you talked to that didn't know Jesus about Jesus? When I was writing this down, I was convicted myself. Like, it's easy for me to cop out and go, oh, there's, there's people who don't know Jesus here, and, you know, I do that every week. As opposed to saying, no, who's the last person that I'm in a relationship that I know that doesn't know Jesus that I need, I need to talk to? And so tomorrow, you could be praying for me. At 4 o'clock, I'm meeting with a friend of mine, and uh, we've talked about this a lot, but I need to, share, I need to tell him again because I love him. And I'm, I don't love him just so he become a Christian. I love him because Jesus loves me. And I'd be a fool not to tell him how much Jesus loves him. I'd be a fool. I wouldn't be a good friend. There's no way I can say I love him if I don't tell him. That's not beating him on the head. That's just saying, hey, man, let me tell you about somebody. Oh, you don't want to hear again? All right. Uh, next, next Monday after that, we'll meet again, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you again. I'll tell you again. And, and, and the way that we, we, we do that, ultimately, the, if, if, if we, we have to first see Jesus ourselves. We, we have to first remind ourselves over and over again what he's done for us. We, we, we have to see how much he loves us. We have to see what he's done for us. We have to see how much he's, he's given himself for us. We have to truly believe in the cross. We have to truly believe in the resurrection. It just can't be something we sing about. We have to inherently believe that. And it's in responding to that that we'll go. In fact, when you go to make disciples, you go to evangelize, you go to love your church, what, you, what you'll see is you need Jesus. We said this earlier, and you'll have to run to him. And when you run to him and you feed upon him and you see the love that he has for you, now you're filled, you're equipped, it, propel, it compels you, pulls you, and pushes you out to go do likewise and do the same. It makes you dependent upon him. If not, we'll just be those of us who have faith, we'll be spinning cartwheels like, like my nephew, holding on, holding on, we'll be in the kingdom because God loves us and he's saved us and he's redeemed them, but we won't be active in what God's doing for the sake of his redemption, for the sake of his world, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing through the church at large, and Lord, specifically, what are you doing to the church here? Lord, when we think about your call now to, for us to go and make disciples, Lord, Lord, admittedly, we don't really know exactly what that means. And Father, we don't even know where to start, and so God, I pray that you would help us see Christ and see the Son in whom you've given to us, and your love that you have for us in him. And Father, in responding to that love, God, I pray that you would, you would convict us, Lord. You would convict us in, in our lifestyle. You would convict us, Lord, and when we neglect, Lord, what you've called us to do, Lord. And so we confess that our sin is not so much commission and what we're doing, but omission and what we're not doing. Father, equip us, give us the encouragement, give us the love through the Spirit to see the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension and the sending of the Spirit to his people 
Lord, that we may respond to that truth and to love those around us intentionally and that you may add to our number daily. We pray this and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.